we get started tonight, be thinking of a favorite song that you would like to sing. This is one of my favorite Christmas carols, Yesterday, Today, Forever. Amen. Let's sing it out. Oh, how sweet a glorious message simple faith may claim. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. He loves to save the sinful, heal the sick and lame. Cheer the mourner, calm the tempest, glory to his name. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. He who pardoned erring Peter never needs thou fear. He who came to faithless Thomas, all thy doubt will clear. He who let the loved disciple on his bosom rest, bids thee still with love as tenderly upon his breast. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. He who made the raging battles walked upon the sea. Still can hush our wildest tempest as on Galilee. In an anguish in Gethsemane, drinks with us each cup of trembling in our agony. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. On that last, as of old, he walked to Emmaus with them to abide. So through all life's way he walketh ever near our side. Soon again shall we behold him hasten, Lord, the day. But twill still be this same Jesus as he went away. Sing it out! Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. All right, who's got a favorite they want to sing? That doesn't have the last name Montoro, okay? 
It, it is well. Okay, 417. Let's sing the first and the third. <clears throat> when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, what sin all the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord oh my soul I saw one in the back. 102. Let's sing the first and the third on this one as well. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here, and drive away the shades of night, and pierce our clouds and bring us light. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. All right, Brother Dave. 118. Start getting some Christmas carols in. Amen. 118. What child is this? Let's sing the first and the third on this one as well. 
top stone rope down in the basement, and uh, we're going to be augmenting that with a little bit of chipping. all of that and you want to come back for more. Amen. Brother Clayton will be preaching. Uh, I love it when Brother Clayton preaches. I mean, there's just something about him standing behind the pulpit. I remember back in the days when I was just out of Bible college traveling and uh, he was the great preacher and I was the oil changer and little helper man. And uh, it kind of brings back some wonderful memories uh, of uh, that and just looking forward uh, how many of you have heard Brother Clayton preach before? I mean, 
been a blessing, hasn't Every time that man preaches, I mean, he's just got a gift, and I'm glad he's willing to use it. You will, you, if you've never heard Brother Clayton preach, you're just in for a treat. I mean, it is, it, it is uh, just fabulous. So that's what's happening Saturday. Uh, if you need, there's still a few flyers left out on the visitor's table. Take them home with you. Invite some more people to come. You know, if we had 200 people show up Saturday, we'll just order out Kentucky Fried Chicken or something, right? Uh, I mean, we'll have a, a, a great time, and so we want you to, to be here, and the gospel's going to be preached. That's one of the best things about it. It's going to be a time. Everybody loves to do fun things at Christmas. But how many of those fun things are about Jesus? This one is, Amen. And so make sure you're here. Okay, take your Bibles. Let's get right into it tonight. Take your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 7. Excuse me. Got to keep the windmill watered here. And we are again going to deal with one of the most interesting, mystical, unknown men in the Bible. Melchizedek, and uh, we find out he was king of Salem. You know, God, God doesn't play games with certain things. He was the king in Jerusalem. You wonder why David wanted to have his kingdom, the, the seat of Israel, the seat of his kingdom in Israel. It's because David was a king in the lineage, not literally, he wasn't, we don't know what Melchizedek's lineage is literally. God has kept that a secret because he is using it to make Melchizedek a picture of Jesus Christ. And one point I wanted to, to make here is I want you to keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 7 and turn to the book of Malachi. I found out that Malachi... Uh, I don't know how many people we have here tonight of Italian heritage, but Malachi is the Italian prophet. His, if you pronounce it the Italian way, it's Malachi. And uh, uh, it, it almost looks like it could be, but it isn't. Uh, I got that from a friend of mine and pastors in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, his name is Penichetti, uh, another good Irishman like myself here. But... Uh, Let's turn to the book of Malachi. We'll pronounce it the proper way. And verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament end with a prophecy. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, I want you to turn over just a few pages in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. It says, And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, Greek for Elijah, which was for to come. Now, the reason why we're looking at this is because I want to give you a biblical illustration of who Melchizedek was. The prophecy in the book of Malachi was, I am going to send whom? Elijah. 
Who actually came according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14? John the Presbyterian. No, I'm sorry. It was John the Baptist, wasn't it? Um, it was John the Baptist who came. Now, John the Baptist, was he Elijah? Yes, he was. That's what the Jesus said right here. I'm waiting for anybody to go like this. And then if everybody went like this, I would have said no. If everybody went like this, I said yes, it was. No. Uh, it's one of those things you can't win. Because John the Baptist wasn't literally Elijah. But he dressed like Elijah. He preached like Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. Luke chapter 1. Jesus said, this is Elijah. And what I'm simply saying is we had two completely different men. Elijah... John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to Jesus, and he ought to have the authority to tell us the fulfillment of the prophecy, he said John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this prophecy because he came in the spirit of Elijah. Now, the same thing is true of this guy named Melchizedek. He was made like unto the Son of God. Does that mean he was Jesus? No. It means God just simply withheld details about his life and about him so that he would be a perfect representation and understanding of one of the aspects of Jesus' life, his priesthood. That is... And so... All I'm trying to say here is let's not get so wrapped up in Melchizedek trying to prove who or what he was. He was a man. The Bible tells us that very plainly in, in Hebrews chapter 7. And we went through that in, in verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. And all I'm trying to do is help you get a hold of Melchizedek, when anybody starts talking about it, it's always confusing. Uh, because everybody wants to interpose their own ideas and try to get in some wild, mystical, wonderful things. And It says Melchizedek was a man, but he was a great man. He was greater than Abraham. Because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And it says in verse 6, it says that, uh, actually, uh, verse 6, it says, And he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises, in verse 7, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. You cannot be a blessing to someone you cannot offer blessings to someone unless you really possess the ability to do so. I can't remember what preacher it was a few years back had this thing where he said, I bless my children all the time. I just put my hand on them and say, I bless you. And um, the only problem is those are empty words unless you possess the ability 
to do something. The Bible says Melchizedek possessed the ability and the authority. That's why God blesses us. Amen? And if you want to be a blessing to God, we talked about this last Sunday night, take what he gives you. Let it change you and give it back to him. That's what God wants. He doesn't want you taking you and doing something that will please God because you and your flesh can do nothing that will please God. But if we'll take the blessings that he blesses us with, the greatest with is salvation, amen, it ought to change the way we live, the way we think, the way we dress, the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we drive most of the time. Um, working on that one. Um, it ought to change everything about us, amen? And when we show that change back to God, that's what God is pleased with and blessed with. And so as we talk about this man named Melchizedek, there's, we're going to be getting to it in a few moments, why he is so important in the Bible. And, uh, the, but I want you to understand he is a picture of Christ just as John the Baptist was of Elijah. And so it doesn't have to be the exact same person. It doesn't have to be fulfilled in exactly the way we think it's going to be fulfilled. And we don't have to take this person, Melchizedek, and fit him into some framework that helps our understanding. There are some things just better left not understood. And the Bible said God doesn't want us to understand his heritage. That's why there's no parents. In verse um, 8, it says, And here men did receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Now, in your outline, I, I put a, a reference to Matthew 22, 32. This is when Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees. You see, they believed that they did not believe that there was anything after the grave. They believed when you die, you're like a dog. And they were sad. You see, no. Um, but that'll help you remember who the Sadducees were. They, were. they were really sad people. They didn't believe in anything they couldn't see. Sounds like some people I've met today, huh? When somebody tells me something like that, I say, now listen. Don't do this real hard, but if you really want to believe in something you can't see, go like this and stick it in a light socket. And you'll feel something you can't see. Isn't that true? Now, don't try me out, kids, please. It works. You will feel really, really bad, and you might burn your finger real good. But there's electricity in there, and you can't see it. But let me tell you, it's real. And it's dangerous, isn't it, Deborah? Yes. She's one of mine. And so, uh, let me tell you. Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees. And he said to them, they had asked him the question, remember this one about the seven brethren that all married the same woman, and none of them had any children? And in the resurrection, whose uh, wife was she going to be? 
There's just a part of me that wishes I could hear what their arguments were. I don't know about you, but I'm just curious as to what they would have said if Jesus would have said, number three. I mean, wouldn't you like to have known what their response would have been? Because you know these guys had arguments worked out on all the different numbers. And they were going to come back at him no matter what number he said until he just looked at them and said, Listen, in the resurrection they are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like unto the angels. He said, And concerning the dead, he said, He's the God of Abraham, of Isaac. He's not the God of the dead, but of the what? Living. Do we need to go any farther than that when we talk about Melchizedek, that he lives? He's living just like Abraham is living, amen? Just like Isaac. He believed God, and when he passed from this life into the next, he passed from life mortal to life immortal, amen? Any person that is saved will make the same transition. And that is the testimony of Melchizedek. It is witnessed that he liveth. I may, and as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Now what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's trying to establish something. And we're going to be getting the points and trying to put it all together here in a few minutes. But what he is trying to establish is the fact that perfection... Remember, we spent several weeks on perfection. And believe it or not, there is quite an assembly of perfect people in this auditorium here tonight. Amen? If you're perfect, say amen. If you're saved, you're perfect. Amen? You're saved perfectly. If there's nothing between you and Jesus Christ, Jesus, I mean, we got to, sometimes I feel like I need to get that message out and preach it about a dozen times for it to sink in. Because when we hear the word perfection, we think of spotlessly, perfectly polished and without any, any problems and all of those things. But that's, that's man's definition. God's definition is simply When we get saved, we are perfect in Jesus Christ. How many sins does it take you to go to hell? One. How many sins did Jesus pay for on the cross? All of them. And when you get saved, how many sins does he save you from? All of them. So you're perfect, amen? Because if you're not, you're not going to heaven. What if God's bookkeeper messed up and there were one left on your account? God's bookkeeper doesn't mess up because Jesus is the bookkeeper, amen? He can't mess up. It says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek Because he was still in Abraham. He was Abraham's, uh, you work it out, uh, grand, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, 
Isaac Jacob. He was his great-grandson, Levi. But the priesthood didn't start till 430 years after Abraham, now did it? Now, I don't know how many greats would be in 430 years, but I mean there'd be more than one or two, uh, three or four in there until we get down to Aaron. And you had to be a son of Aaron, but what the writer is simply saying here is that Levi, in essence, because he was part of the promises, and one of the promises that was given to Abraham was the law that was coming, that was given to Abraham, and that's what made the Levitical priesthood a reality, and that is where the, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the law, submitted itself willingly to the priesthood of Melchizedek in the paying of tithes and offerings to Melchizedek. That's the point that is trying to be made here. We are seeing the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek, how it has a greater authority because Melchizedek has greater authority than Abraham. And if he has a greater authority than Abraham, he certainly has a greater authority than Abraham's descendants and, and of the Levitical priesthood. Now look at the verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it people the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed... There is made a necessity, of necessity, a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far great, far more evident, sorry, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disallowing of the commandment going before of the weak, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Now, I, I want to remind us again what we are wading through here tonight in the book of Hebrews. If those of you that have been members here for a very long time, you know I've been talking about the book of Hebrews for years. This is one of the reasons I've been just pushing it off into the future because these are some of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to be understood. And so you've got to Put on your thinking caps. You've, you've got to really compare Scripture with Scripture. And we've got to keep the main point, the main point, or we're going to get lost in here. A lot of people get lost when they see the name Melchizedek. They start trying to figure out who he is. He's a picture of Jesus Christ is who he is. He is a priest. He is a great man with great authority. And that's where we have to leave it. If we go any further than that, we're going to start saying and thinking things that are going to go 
to the borderline, if not over the borderline, of what is error and what is truth. But we, the, the key here is the connection between Jesus Christ and the law. Between Jesus Christ and David, king of Israel. All of these things are tied up in this passage. And then to make things really complicated, we're going to bring in Abraham, who was 400 years before the law. That's why I call Hebrews God's switchboard. It's making all of the connections, and we find out that there is one God who made the promises to Abraham. No, he didn't change his mind when he gave the law on Mount Sinai and then change his mind again when he sent Jesus Christ. These things were done decently and in order, and one is part of the other so much so that you cannot have God's grace if you don't understand God's law. You will not get God's law right if you don't understand the promises that were made to Abraham. There is one God and one message in this whole book called the Bible. And the only way you make those connections is a consistent, literal understanding of the words. Now, this probably doesn't make any difference to you, but there are people out there we call covenant theologians. Almost all Protestant preachers are covenant in their theology. They divide the Bible up, excuse me, into two opposing chapters. The chapter of God's grace and the chapter of God's law. And they make law and grace work against each other. Nothing could be further from the point, my friend. The author of Galatians tells us that this law is our schoolmaster to what? Bring us to Christ. How in the world would you understand your lost estate if you didn't understand the difference between what was righteousness and what is sin? How in the world would you understand the necessity of Christ's sacrifice on the cross to pay the price for our sins if we did not have the law and all of the penalties and the punishments that are in God's law. You've got to put them in order. And that's what we have here. We have a lot of churches and denominations and organizations and people who call themselves Christians that are all wrapped up in this thing called the law of God. They think that, uh, I remember when I was a kid, they had this thing called blue laws. Does anybody remember the blue laws? That meant all the stores were closed on Sunday. And you know what? That wasn't such a bad thing. But are you more righteous because McDonald's is closed on Sunday? Hmm? 
Because the local drugstore was closed on Sunday and the gas station was closed on Sunday, does that make you more holy unto God? No. In fact, in colonial England, New England, I should say, colonial New England, there was a wall against Sabbath breaking. And they were so intelligent that they couldn't tell the difference between Saturday and Sunday, and they punished you if you broke Sunday. Sabbath means Saturday, my friend. I'm sorry. It is the seventh day. But they had a Sabbath-breaking law that referred to only Sunday. Massive intelligence when you get wrapped up in the law now, isn't there? You're going to be bound to do silly, foolish things. We, we have groups and religions out there now, Deborah and Wolf, that better be last time. We have all these religious organizations out there who are trying to get to heaven by keeping the law, by doing enough good things. One of the chief signs of false religion is that in it, you can name the religion. They give you a list of things you're supposed to do to make yourself pleasing to God. You say, well, give me an example. Sure. Can I, uh, can I pick on the Catholics tonight? Anybody be upset if I pick on them? I'm sorry, I'm asking permission. Now, if you don't want me to, I'll pick on somebody else. But there's an example right there. The Catholic Church, this is what they teach. You get a relationship with God by having water sprinkled on your head as a baby. If you want salvation, you must partake of the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. But until you're old enough to do that, you have a set of godparents who do it for you. So if you die between the time you're baptized as a baby... And before you reach confirmation, you better hope that your grandparents didn't have a fifth of gin in a sock, your godfather, and, and, uh, and your godmother was doing all kinds of ungodly things because if they weren't doing a good job, you're going to hell, buddy, uh, according to Roman Catholic doctrine. After you get to 12, should you be so fortunate to live that old, then you can go through confirmation. And those of you that have been through confirmation... It can be one of the most morally degrading events of your entire life, depending on the priest you get. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's not so bad. Again, it just depends on who the priest is and what he tries to do to you. Then you're responsible for showing up to confess all of your sins to the priest, to partake of the Mass on a regular basis, to get married in the church, to have your children brought to the church and baptized, and then when you die, it is your responsibility to get the priest there before you breathe your last breath to give you the last rites and extreme unction so that you can go to purgatory and burn off everything you didn't pay for while you're in the church. Now, if you were fortunate enough to be very rich, you can purchase a plenary indulgence. I don't know if they still do this, but I actually saw one 
1921, this fellow Bible college student grandfather had given Pope Pius, whatever his number was, uh, the equivalent of about a million dollars in 1920s, and he gave him a plenary indulgence for his uh, fam for himself, for his family, for anybody else he wanted to confer it on to. He could do whatever he want, rape, mill uh, murder, pillage. He could eat red meat on Friday, all he wanted, because it was all taken care of. Then you go to purgatory and you suffer as if you were really in hell until you've paid for your very last sin if you're not rich enough to purchase it with money. And then after 40,000 years or whatever time period it might happen to take for you to get your list straightened up, you can go to heaven. He said, you're being incredibly sarcastic. Yes, I am. But I want you to understand how much works and money is involved in that faith called the Roman Catholic faith. And the only thing that you get when you're done with all of your effort and all of your money is a chance to go to hell, but it's temporary. The end result is that you get into heaven by the very skin of your teeth because you've just burned off the last one of your sins and your soul floats to heaven to be with God. You've just, just made it after all of that effort. Now let me tell you something. There are many falsehoods in the Roman Catholic system. There is no place called purgatory according to the scriptures. God will not accept money to take care of your sins. And there's nothing you can do to rid yourself of one sin, let alone all of your sins. That's the difference between law. You see, those who wrapped up in the law, it's all about what you can do. Now, let's take an even sillier example, if we may. Can we talk about the Protestants? Do we have anybody here that was a Protestant before they got saved? And went to a Lutheran church or an Anglican church or not too many Protestants here, so we can pick on them really good, all right? But see, the Protestants will tell you, and it depends on what group of Protestants you are. We're not going to deal with the high church Protestants because they're so much like the Catholics in their belief and practice. There's really no major difference. We're going to deal with the, what they call the low church Protestants or the Protestants without all the traditions. Is You come to church and you get water sprinkled on your head like a baby and that puts you into the covenant line. So if you die from the time that you're baptized until you're old enough to go through a catechism or a confirmation in the, in the Protestant church, you get to go to heaven. But if you're not baptized as a baby and you die before you uh, go through your confirmation in the Protestant church, you go straight to hell, no questions asked there forever. You know, the Protestants, they're kind of tough people to deal with at times. But here's where it really gets absolutely absurd. Is you deal with your standard United Methodist, uh, 
type Protestant person today. Well, you just come to church and be as good as you can and God understands. Beginning, end of story. Now, how many of you would like a religion like that? You just do whatever you want. And, you know, as long as you're trying to be good, God will understand. And you'll just get to go to heaven. Now, isn't that kind of a slap in the face to the people who go through all of this ritual and all of this sorrow and all of this work trying to earn their way to heaven? In the, in the Protestant church, you just show up and do the best you can and God understands. What does that make God to be? The proper English word is a buffoon. No, that is a real word. You can look it up in the dictionary. A buffoon is a clown who doesn't know he's being a clown. Now, the reason my children are laughing so hard is one of my children, who shall go unmentioned, is, is very adept at illustrating the definition of the word buffoon. But we're working on it. But it is a clown who does not know they're being a clown, and everybody's laughing at them, but the buffoon sits there and goes, <laughs> they really like me. That is the God of Protestantism, my friend. It is a blasphemy. It is as much of an insult to who God is as the person who is going through the ritualistic system and trying to get God to be pleased with them. Do you know what an insult it is to God to tell him that Jesus didn't finish the work and you have to reauthor Jesus Christ's dead body and shed blood by partaking of the Mass? There, there's nothing more blasphemous out there except what the Protestants do because they make God just a big old joke. If you get wrapped up in the law, you are going to insult God and His character to the degree of blasphemy. Now, that is a word in and of its enunciation that sounds like a horrible word, and it is. It is the highest and most purposeful insult of a person's character that can be done from a human being to anyone or anything else. That's the definition of blasphemy. And when we make God a buffoon, we blaspheme him. When we tell God that I've got to go to the church and I've got to partake of this ritual in the church so that I can re-sacrifice Jesus Christ to pay for my sins, that is a blasphemy, my friend. When we go to a church and we trust in Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith to get us to heaven as the Mormons do, that is a blasphemy, my friends. When we tell God there is no hell and Jesus Christ is no God, He's just a, a, a great angel as the Jehovah's Witness doctrine is, that is a blasphemy. When we understand that a holy God gave promises to Abraham, 
that a Redeemer was coming. And that before that Redeemer came, God gave to His people, the descendants of Abraham, a law that is unexcelled in the annals of the history of mankind. Oh, yes, if you are a real study of student of history, you will have read in the history books how that Hammurabi's code begins to compare to the Ten Commandments. I only have one word for someone who would write those words. Liar. Uh, there is nothing in Hammurabi's code that even begins to compare to the justice that is in God's law. You study that law. You study those 613 commandments in the Old Testament. How many laws do we have on the American books of jurisprudence? The last time I heard any number that was anywhere near on the federal law book all by itself, there are over 2 million laws. Now, tax time is coming. Do you know that not one rule in filling out your taxes, other than the fact that you have to fill them out as a law, everything else is government regulation. Now stop and try to comprehend the United States tax code is a book thousands of pages thick. In fact, no one person even has a copy of the whole thing. Except the government, and I wonder if they could produce it, should you ask for it? And someone aptly said, all of the laws in this great country of ours are there to try to keep, help us keep the ten that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. You know what? We can't do it. God's law is to show us one thing and one thing alone. Look at verse 18. It says, For there is verily a disannulling. I'm sorry, verse 19 is the one I want to read right now. We'll get to verse 18 in a minute. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. Now, if you've got a King James Bible there, that did is in italics. How many know why it's in italics? It's in italics because there is no Greek word that says did in there. But if I were a Greek person reading those words, the did has to be in there for me to understand what a Greek person would and since that word, there was no Greek word for did in there, they put it in there so that in italics, so we could understand that the translators were not only translating the words dot for dot for dot, they were translating the overall thought and scope of what the passage was trying to say. See, that's one of the great lies of the translators of the NIV is they believe in this... Um, Oh, I can't even remember the term now. It's out of my head. But uh, um, dynamic equivalence. There it is. I know it was floating right out there somewhere. You see, they say, we don't need to translate word for word. We can just give you thought for thought. 
I don't want somebody else's thoughts on my Bible. I want God's words. Amen. The bringing in of the better hope did. What did it did? Look at the first half of the verse. For the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did. It did make us perfect. The better hope is the promise that was given to Abraham that was explained by the law that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, there's your connection. Without the law, we would not understand the greatness of the promise or the incredible thoroughness of the salvation. The law teaches us that we cannot be perfect of our own efforts. It condemns all of the religions of the world in one sentence except one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But how would we know that works without the law? What is the penalty for sin, my friend? The wages of sin is death. Death passed upon all men, for that all have what? Sinned. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Not according to the Levitical priesthood, that of the law but of a priesthood so far superior that the founder of that priesthood, Melchizedek, we are not even given his name, his, his heritage, his lineage, or details about his life and his death so that we can understand he is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ. He is without peer in the annals of human history. He was made a living picture of Jesus Christ. That is who Melchizedek is. And if we try to read anything else, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. And by the way, there's an awful lot written on Melchizedek. And so very little of it makes any sense when you start reading the Bible. All we need to know is he was made like unto the Son of God, that he was a great man, and that it is his priesthood that God has chosen to be above and beyond anything so that Jesus Christ could fulfill the law and offer himself the sacrifice for all sins for all time. Let's look just very quickly here at the conclusions here. We've described the differences here of the different priesthood, tried to. Melchizedek was greater. We've talked about that. Look at verse 12. It says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Remember, it said the priesthood 
Verse 11, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, if the offering of those lambs and those bullocks and those goats and all of those animals on the, temp- on the altar in the temple and before that the brazen altar in the tabernacle, if there were anything done there that could have brought a human being to true perfection, then why did we need another priest after the order of Melchizedek? And so if we're going to step beyond that of the Levitical priesthood, then we must step beyond the law of God. And once we step beyond the law of God, we find out that salvation is not based upon what I do, what I can do, or how obedient I can be. Salvation is now based upon the priestly work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Does that make sense? Are we still together here? I know we're in the same building, but I just want to know if we're still together because this is what tonight has all been about. That's why I've tried to give the illustrations of these other religions and how they blaspheme Jesus Christ and God himself in this book called the Bible. It's because they're all wrapped up in the things they do. If you could get saved by the things you do, do you not think that the Levitical priesthood could have done a better job than the Catholic Church, than the Protestant Church? And we don't even need to mention Sung Young Moon and all the other Looney Tunes that are out there that tried to preach some kind of salvation by following them. Amen? Can we say amen to that? But salvation cannot be by the Levitical priesthood. Because the Levitical priesthood is to explain to us the sacrifice of Christ. And the need of another priest, not after the order of Levi, not of the descendants of Aaron, but of the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember in Chapter 5, when we first... This, is, this phrase is repeated twice in this chapter. And it's also in chapter 5. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You go back to Psalm 110. And the connection that is made in Psalm 110 is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the King of Israel, is also the high priest. He is the priest... And the king, when we get to Hebrews chapter 9, if I have one chapter in the Bible, it is Hebrews chapter 9. It is my favorite chapter of all the Bible. We are establishing Jesus as the king, the son of David, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 9, he is the sacrifice that satisfies God. He is all of those things. And by the way, only God, only God could do all of that. And that's where we'll finish tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us as we are wading through deep waters tonight and Lord 
just feel that so much of this is, I'm just not doing the job that needs to be done explaining. Pray the Holy Spirit would be able to step in and just help us grab a hold of these things. To make the connections that you do in the book of Hebrews. That we could understand the promises are defined by the law and the work of Jesus is explained by the law. And yet the work of Jesus is so far greater than the law that it's made none effect to us who live in Jesus Christ today. My prayer is that if there be one person here who is trying to work their way to heaven, that they would turn loose of those works and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray if there are those here whose minds and hearts are still tangled in the webs of the law, that they would be able to be broken free of those bondages and live in the truth of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your son was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. And Lord, we ask that you would help us gain the application of this passage that we could live in the freedom and in the truth that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'd just like to give you an opportunity you'd like to come and spend a few moments at an old-fashioned altar. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, you'd like someone to show you how you can know your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. All you need to do is tell us. And we'll have someone take the Bible and show you how you can know that you're saved.